Welcome to Leadership 2020. I'm Claire Carpenter. I'm joined today by Krista Cullen. Um, Krista has had not one but two hugely successful careers. Firstly, as part of the Team GB hockey team, um, Olympic gold winning in 2016 in Rio. Krista was capped just under 200 times for her country and um, played an integral part in hockey for many years. Subsequent to that, Krista has started and founded her own charity in conservation called Tufati and also runs a successful consultancy business here in the UK. Krista, what to say, where to start? Thank you, first of all, for joining <laughs> Not me at all. today. Not at all. So um, I think it would be really interesting to think about some of the key sort of themes that have perhaps threaded those two careers together for you. Well, I think firstly, it's good to point out they're not a natural transition. No. Um, sports conservation is, is, is quite unique, um, but I think it goes all the way back to my heritage. So I'm third generation Kenyan, sort of born, brought up there and then got sent away to boarding school as somewhat of a feral child. So mm. this passion was ingrained in me uh, for wildlife conservation from a very young age. Yes. And I think that kind of gives me the credibility in some ways to sort of uh, have the passion to, to, to pursue it. Mm. And then I kind of went on a very different journey of, of, of sport, but I struggled to find an identity post my, uh, my life in Africa when I arrived at boarding school here. And sport's a lovely equilibrium in some ways to give you that that equal individual that makes up a team hence why I I sort of chose hockey and then from there it kind of rollercoastered me at the age of 17 I was had an opportunity to become a senior international having gone through the age groups because there was an injury uh, in my position Uh, and the coach at the time because I was physically capable possibly, you know, beyond my years, gave me a chance. And that kind of thread of being an opportunist has definitely been something that has gone throughout my career. So thinking about how you've made the most of opportunities and also thinking about whether or not some of them were quite risky, how do you relate taking a risk with seizing an opportunity? I think it all stems from accepting failure as a starting point. And my career very early on, there was a massive part of having to suck it up. And actually, as a 17-year-old, thrust into a group of, of women who, quite frankly, were all your heroes that you watched on TV, to then get picked up for an Olympic qualification tournament to go as favourites and to miss out when you got down to... It was the fifth, sixth playoff, and five goes to the Olympics and six doesn't. And you went as favourites. So um, complete and utter disappointment and the Koreans scored with 20 seconds to go and we didn't go to the Olympics. And I think for anybody who's lucky enough to potentially be successful, I think if you have tasted what it feels like to feel rock bottom, you, you, you kind of have that real fight that kind of pulls you out of it. And so that was kind of my starting blocks of my Olympic campaign. So Yes, I was 17. Yes, I still had a lot more opportunity, but at the same time, it still hurt a lot. Uh, And so from that journey to then eventually become an Olympian at the Beijing Olympics, but we finished sixth. So disappointed, missed out on the semi-final. 
um, to then go to uh, the London Games, which as any athlete will tell you who was lucky enough to be a Great Britain athlete representing them in front of you know, 15,000 people screaming for hockey when you're used to playing in front of his man, a man and his dog. It was uh, quite an occasion for us. Yeah. Um, and you felt, you know, like you were kind of a hero, really, for two weeks of your life. But yes, in some ways, disappointment again, you know, making the semifinals, but losing very narrowly to an Argentinian team. The difference was the marginal gains that a lot of people speak about in business and in sport, uh, you know, about the fact we hit the post and the Argentinians didn't and they beat us 2-1 uh, and we were devastated uh, to end up playing in a bronze medal playoff. But we got a medal, we didn't leave empty-handed and that was important for our sport in order to make sure that we were able to continue being funded mm-hmm. uh, post that. And I'm very passionate about the fact we're actually a very gender-neutral sport um, so, yes, the women were successful in London, but we share the funding 50-50 between the men's and the women's program. Okay. So that the men's program runs in unison with us. And they did the same when they won gold in 88. You know, and, and that makes me super proud because I think it's lovely because not all, all sports sort of have that same experience. Then I guess my career took a, a weird turn because I retired from sport. Um, I decided Africa, the pull of Africa was far too much for me. Uh, I'd been away from my family for nearly, you know, 10, 15 years of boarding school life. And um, I wanted to go and pursue my other big passion, which is wildlife conservation. So I went back to Kenya. I became a pilot and I worked in airline surveillance for, for wildlife, um, just helping out where I could as much as I had another job, because in conservation, <laughs> you don't earn much money. But it's a passion driven uh, existence and it's an amazing lifestyle. I did three years of that. And then um, one fateful April day, I got a phone call from the coach who had taken me to both of the Olympic Games previously, inviting me with no guarantees. uh, And that's the important point. No guarantees, not on funding, uh, to come back and and take a risk and see whether I could put myself or get myself back into that that squad of 16 with with 10 months to go in the build-up to the Rio Games. So there's so many really interesting threads joining that story up. So the first one that I heard I'd really like to just explore with you is the piece around dealing with failure, dealing with disappointment and picking yourself back up from that and still continuing and still being determined to keep moving to the next level. So where did you find that grit or that determination to be able to do that? I think the passion and the want to be an Olympian is something relatively unique uh, and the opportunity to do so is unique. So, and I was 17, as I said, so there were girls in the squad who, you know, it was their last shot. And for them, my heart broke because a lot of them, you know, hadn't felt that they had fulfilled their Olympic ambitions, but they didn't get another, they weren't, they were too old necessarily for another four year campaign. You know, it's a long old slog. You know, people see us on telly at the Olympic Games and they think it's just like, you know, this miraculous four years of sort of doing nothing and then rocking up to try and compete for a medal. Yeah. It is relentless. That environment needs so much commitment and rightfully so. I'm not, I'm not sort of saying it shouldn't. And a huge amount of sort of sacrifice of other things that, you know, there are in life, especially as sort of a 17, you know, 17 to you, sort of 25 year olds, you know, there's, there's other things you most likely would like to do at times. Um, rather than think about going to the gym, doing extra fitness, honing your skill of drag flicking, whatever it may be that's specific to you. Yeah. Um, and so I guess failure gives you a very, very 
hard slap of reality. Mm. But sometimes we get so involved in our own lives of what we're doing and so blinkered that we start to forget what else is out there and other things that are also important to you. So I guess it was kind of, right, let's go back to the drawing board. Uh, our governing body went bust. Um, so hockey was in dire straits uh, then. But then amazingly, you know, three Olympics later, now you're talking to somebody who's been through that, that whole experience with three, there was three of us actually who were on the field for non-qualification that actually stood on the podium at Rio oh. as gold medalists. And every single one of us broke into tears because of that journey we'd, we'd all been on that was very different to say the first time Olympians yeah. who you know had been part of the gold medal winning team and done ex- extremely well but they hadn't felt maybe elements of the journey that that we'd been on and there was a lot of learning curves along the way but I definitely think that's helped me keep perspective and keep motivated and it's got to come from within but also united in a team environment is 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 very unique if you get a culture which you can feel empowered by, live by, and challenge and nurture by. And that's what we created because we came a long way. So you talked there about empowerment and creating an environment where people can thrive and be the best that they can be. It would be great to hear you say some more about that. How do you create that culture of empowerment? Firstly, it's not easy. (laughs) Um, And I talk a lot in businesses about how do you try and well you've got to understand your people and I think in previous Olympics that I had been lucky enough to be a part of Athens included Beijing and London we were prescribed to and sometimes if you're not part of the creation of either a mission a vision or you know how that's broken down into the fundamental brick layers of of how you're going to actually achieve that Mm. I think if you're not a part of that it's very difficult to then live it So as athletes, I think we took a little bit more responsibility in the build up to Rio because of previous experiences a lot of the time. And we sat 31 athletes looking each other dead in the eye and said, right, how do we want to be remembered? Because if we come up with it and we create it, you then can both nurture and challenge around it. And then there's a common purpose. There's a unity. There's a lot of things that in a lot of businesses that I work with don't always have and a constant reference to um, specific language that means and resonates the same way with each person Um, but if we all give our own take on it then that perception is different to each individual so what we did is we created this sort of four five six statements which were um, you know be the difference create history, inspire the future, we're winners, we are one team, to to name some of them. And each of those elements resonated with different athletes in different ways. So the one that obviously resonated with me was about the difference element, which is now why I've picked that up and taken it to my charity work, to Fauci, specifically meaning difference. So we created a culture that we all bought into because everybody was given an equal voice. In businesses, a lot of the time, the directors or level above that dictate and say, this is what the mission is, everyone. Mm -hmm. But there are athletes in the squad who were capped 200 times for their country. And there were some first time newbies. And previous environments have been the newbies don't have a say. The old birds tell everyone what to do. And literally, we then don't have 
you know, they have good ideas too. Yeah. They're a different generation to us as much as I don't like to admit it, <laughs> but they have different views and different things that they want to bring to the table and things that mean something to them too. Yeah. So if we want them to feel inspired and want to get up in the morning on a cold winter's day and train as hard as we need them to train to become potential Olympians, they have to have something they can hold on to too because there are those dark moments where you don't want to do it. And that's very normal. Yes. Um, so we created this culture where there was a complete unity, where everybody bought into a common purpose and then we could both nurture and challenge around that culture. And that is imperative because different personalities need different support. Okay. And so what we needed to do was make sure each individual, we understood them implicitly. We needed to know their vulnerabilities, what their strengths and what their weaknesses were. So that when we were in the heat of the moment, I knew what to say to them so that I could get them out of that trough of being slipping towards their Z game, as we called it, and get them back on their A game as quickly as I possibly could. Because we have four quarters of 15 minutes each. And the coach can be up in the, in, the, in the crowd and bellow as much as he wants, but his influence on the field is minimal. Yeah. It's us that has to deliver. And it's us when we're delivering on a presentation or a PowerPoint that is delivering on behalf of our businesses. And if one person is going off on a tangent and not delivering as they should, how does the other person delivering with them pull them back on task? Mm. It's about common language and knowing how to deal with that individual to get the best out of them. Because if you tear a strip off them, some people it works, don't get me wrong, and sometimes it's needed. Yeah. But also sometimes there's that sort of tone of voice that we need to use that's a little bit more nurturing and supportive because that'll get the best out of that person with those skills. And, and that nurture or challenge, that distinction is really important, isn't it? And oh, it can change, can't it? Absolutely. And trust me, in the heat of the moment, and somebody needs to be told something, I am one of the worst at throwing it out there. But then a discussion post the event. So we're all learning. Okay, this is what I said. This is how I said it. Did I get it wrong? Did I misinterpret something? Mm. But rather than leaving these elephants in the room, which we do all the time, and it drives me insane because people don't man up and have confrontational conversations because they're awkward. You know, at the FD conference, I specifically brought up the fact that financial directors don't necessarily go to the CEOs and challenge them about the fact that they travel everywhere first class or something that maybe isn't the ethos that the FD needs to be putting through the finance. Mm. And it's awkward because it's one of those really horrible conversations to have to say to your boss. But at times in order to get equality, in order to get that lack of this sort of little spiteful silos of people talking about stuff within businesses, within sport, within our own personal lives, you know, sometimes we have to man up and have the conversation yes. um, and, and, and nip it in the bud and be that person that's willing to put your head above the parapet. And I talk a lot around psychological safety. And sometimes we just like staying safe and we don't like change and all those things. But if we weren't willing to change in the build-up to Rio, if we weren't willing to take on a new culture, to take on a new coaching style, to take on all these new things, I wouldn't be sitting in front of you as a gold medalist now. Mm -hmm. But yes, it's risk. And we spoke about that earlier. Yeah. And I get it. I understand. Yes, it is risky. But unless we are willing to risk or change, then there's not always going to be that opportunity to be different, be to fouty, take things on. And, you know, sometimes it does work out. Sometimes 
being different is also a good thing because you bring a unique view. And and that's a learned behaviour, isn't it? If Even if it feels uncomfortable to start with, that confronting difficult conversations, that having the, you know, potentially conflicting a, a disagreement with somebody else, we can learn to do that, can't we? Yeah, but it's not a natural skill that everyone possesses. Yes. So I think that's important, you know, and it's one thing delivering a challenge. It's very much another thing being somebody on the receiving end and being willing to receive it. Yes. And the epitome of my environment, having rejoined a squad that I had hung my boots up four years or three years previous, to then come back into the environment and start throwing my weight around saying, you know, I deserve the place. That was not how it went about. So in, in, in that same ethos of that confrontational conversation element, I wrote to the squad indirectly through the coach and said to him, right, you need to tell them you invited me. I didn't think 10 months out of an Olympic Games, I warranted the opportunity because how I'm received by this group is so important as to whether I'm going to actually get another shot to become a third time Olympian. So confrontational straight away. And I said, that is a prerequisite of me rejoining. If you cannot, if you don't do it, then I can't rejoin because the perception of the group is so important to me because I'm a disruptor. And sometimes disrupting's good, but sometimes it's it's kind of not too. When they're on a really cool journey on the build-up to an Olympic Games, the team's looking good. Yes, we're ranked seventh in the world, but the likelihood of meddling was relatively high. They'd beaten the world champions at the European Cup. You know, there was there was some really good stuff and a great group of girls. And that's why I wanted to rejoin them. Yeah. So then when I then rejoined sort of a three-week period of time whereby I had to consolidate myself, you know, rock up and show that I, I wasn't the old fat bird coming back to the team. I actually was relatively fit and capable. And then hope, having not picked up a hockey stick for three years, that I had some form of technical ability that yes. came back to me. And then actually go to the girls who had filled my boots because they wanted to hate me. And that's okay. Like, it's okay to feel a bit aggrieved when somebody's been appointed externally and you had your eye on that job and you were climbing a ladder and all of those things. It's okay to feel disheartened. Yeah. But you're still part of a team. You still have to work with whomever is appointed to get the best out of them and yourself in order to have that common purpose. So those conversations were tough. And I went to those girls and I said, I know you want to hate me, but let's go for coffee and let's just thrash it out. Let's discuss this. You know, and, and not everyone accepted the opportunity to have that conversation and that's their prerogative. Yeah. But those that did, we grew together. And one of them definitely was one of the ones that was on the other flank the whole way through the Olympic Games, started every game alongside me. And, you know, the rest is history. Um, but confrontation is so important and we're scared of it. Uh, and that's okay. It's not natural for everybody. I have quite a confrontational convers- um, personality. So it comes possibly a little bit more naturally to me. But We've all got it within us. We all see the problem. <laughs> it's about being willing to, to kind of uh, put our head above the parapet. And I'm wondering if there was a conflict for you um, internally as well around leaving one thing that was a passion for you when you came back to the Olympic squad that 10 months before Rio. You left behind you, didn't you? you your new passion, the passion that you were pursuing with your charity. Yeah, so the charity wasn't established then. Right. So um, I was, I'm on the board of a place called Galana Wildlife Conservancy and have been since 2008 yes. when we first set it up. We lease 65,000 acres uh, adjacent to a Savo East National Park, but we lease it from the government. And the whole point of that is to try and stop 
illegal crop work, not crop breeding, sorry, illegal wood, um, people taking sort of wood and fire, fire charcoal, and then also any form of poaching uh, and basically creating surveillance and a buffer zone for those animals to be able to go backwards and forwards okay. out of the national park and back. Yeah. So I was just, it was volunteering my own time, right. basically. Uh, and because of the vast expanse of the area, a lot of that had to be done by air. Okay. Uh, and I thought I'd upskill myself whilst I had the opportunity to do so, yeah. as you do. So, um, yeah, so that was my massive passion. Uh, and it still is, of course it is. Yeah. But 10 months out, you don't get phone calls. You don't get an opportunity to be a third-time Olympian. No. You definitely don't get a crack at possibly becoming a gold medalist. So it was one of those offers that was just a little bit too good to refuse. But did I have self-doubt? Absolutely. I, I would be not telling the truth if I didn't. That is very normal to feel sometimes an inch tall going back to an environment and your whole life going full circle again. There were no guarantees for me. Just because I was a double Olympian and a bronze medalist, that didn't mean I had guaranteed my name onto that flight to get me to Rio. Mm. I still had so much to prove. And half of the squad that went to Rio were first-time Olympians. Yeah. You know, were girls who had come in, new blood, which is great for our sport. But, you know, that is quite a tough thing to come in. And there's so much expectation on your shoulders because historically you've always delivered. Now try and do it three years having not picked up a hockey stick. And it's, it's daunting. It's, that's very normal, though. I just said, listen, you're going to be a bit of an emotional wreck at times. Stuff's not going to be absolutely perfect. Yeah. And just accept that that will be part of the journey. And if you are that athlete that doesn't get your name on the list, God forbid it would have been such a difficult thing to suck up, but the best team would be picked for Rio and your inclusion would have made that team better that then ultimately goes to fight for a medal on our behalf. Yeah. Because 31 athletes training full-time for 16 places, that's a lot of people disappointed. Uh, and that's a really tough thing about elite sport. You know, it's, it's very cutthroat at the top end. Uh, and it needs to be because we need environments that are very competitive to get the best team possible on that flight. So I know now that you, um, in your consultancy role, talk to various businesses and groups around your learned experiences and how that can be transmitted, I guess, into the world of business. What lessons are there in that, in that do you think, for people thinking about building a, a really high-performing team now around them with some really aggressive goals and so on? Yeah, specifically with my consultancy company, that's exactly what I do do. It's important that people uh, realise that, that there are so many connotations between sport and business. Yeah. Um, and because of the heightened emotion and various different things, um, you get the outcome quite quickly in sport. And that's not always the same in business. And I've kind of gone on a long old journey because whilst I was training as a full-time athlete when I was based in the UK, I've always worked. Mm -hmm. So I've been a director of marketing for various different firms in the city. And so I guess a bit unique to other athletes is I've, I did a business management degree. So I kind of get both worlds which has put me in a really lovely position post-career yeah. um, because if you're able to use almost the business language and relate it to the sporting context and then make it specific to each corporate that you're able to work with, that then gives them some direction. Um, so from facilitating conferences to various other things, you know, it's important that each individual business has its unique approach. 
to understanding that yes. in more detail to then be able to use the knowledge and the skills I've been able to, to, to get. But I think you just got to be very real. And sometimes we have aspirations and things we want to target that are our aspirational goal, like our gold medal was. Yeah. You know, we were an underdog, ranked seventh in the world, taking on the Dutch who had won the Olympics two years on uh, two Olympics campaigns on the trot. And we're going to be the first Olympic team to ever get a treble. And they, we met them in the final. So if there was ever a team that wasn't going to win that deal in business or whatever it may be, it was us. But sometimes you've got to put yourselves in those situations to start working out what is and isn't possible. Were we the best team on the day? 100% no. They got in our circle 26 times and scored three goals. Mm -hmm. We got in their circle six times and scored three goals. So, you know, sometimes everyone sort of believes in stats or where your business is at or where you are comparing against your competitors or all of these things. And we start analyzing ourselves implicitly. But sometimes it's having a little bit of lady luck on your side, taking those opportunities, being a bit ruthless and creating an environment, in my opinion, where people feel empowered and are all eligible to take risk. And that's about not micromanaging each of our people in our teams giving them a bit of license to make decisions. And because as management, and I've been there too as a director, you want to make sure all the decisions are in line with exactly what you do and you think. And we then prescribe how we want the deliverables. But that individual then continues to come to you whenever there's an issue because they need guidance and support. Mm. And we don't have the time to always offer that person those specifics. And then that person's lost or incapable of being able to make that decision and therefore they're not learning. Mm. So our environment in training gave us this opportunity to feel that at times we could take educated risk. I was one of the lucky members in the team to score a goal uh, in the Olympic final. And I've never scored an outfield goal for my country in my whole career, I've scored 70 odds, which are penalty corners because that was my specialist skill. Yeah. But I've never scored an outfield goal in my life other than the Olympic final. And nowadays people say to me, what, what epitomized your training environment? And the fact that as right defender, I found myself in the circle in that opportune moment where I completely left my center defense exposed with two men on her. And I saw an opportunity, saw a gap, went for it. The ball came across me left to right. And whenever I coach kids, which I do a lot of now because we've got a you know massive priority to inspire the future, a ball coming left to right across you, you never hit first time ever because the likelihood of you missing it is quite high. So what did I do? I hit it first time and it bounced almost as if I could blow it over the line and eventually went underneath the keeper's pads. I don't know how it happened, but it happened. And the coach came up to me at the end of the game and said, what the B <laughs> were you doing in the circle? And to this day, I don't know. But he said he surrounded himself with intelligent hockey players that make intelligent decisions. And if there's ever going to be a time to take a risk, maybe that was the time. Nine times out of 10, it might not work. But on that day, it did. So, um, yeah, I guess risk-taking 
being willing to put your head above the parapet, being a bit confrontational when it's required. Yes. For the benefit of the team, because you're united with something that, that unifies you because you've got your common purpose. And that's kind of what a lot about how I deliver and what I want, you know, teams, whether that's in business and sport, whatever it may be, is about them starting to realize that you can be different. You can take a unique approach to things, but it's all around empowerment and, and it's all about people. It's about understanding your team better, taking the time to understand the individuals that make up your teams so that you can get the best out of them because that's what we all want. So I think you said earlier around having really getting to know the people that are in your team, really understanding where you nurture, where you challenge, um, what really drives that person so that in the moment you can push the right buttons, you, you know you know what you're doing there. Mm-hmm. And lots of people have skills gained in sport. Not, not many of them are Olympic gold medalists, to be fair. But lots of people do have some skills that they've gained in this sort of sporting environment, don't they, as leaders, that perhaps they could draw more on in business? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. You know, I talk a lot to athletes now about transitioning. And unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, you're blinkered when you're in the environment because it's the only thing that matters to you. You know, your training, you know, your coaches want you to be completely committed. And I endorse that wholeheartedly. But at times, you know, through injury, non-selection or retirement, we see a lot of athletes who lose their identity. And trust me, I've been there. It's awful. You, you have such a unified purpose. You know exactly where you're going. The Olympic Games finishes if you're lucky enough to compete in it and you fall off a cliff. And there are, as you've just alluded to, and and I've discussed, so many transferable skills from athletes who have been part of amazing teams, whether it's an individual sport because you work with your coach or a team sport, which I'm lucky enough to come from. There are so many transferable skills. And I think a lot of the time, because a lot of athletes have these gaping holes in their CVs because they've been aspiring to be Olympians or world champions or whatever it may be within their respective sports, Don't sideline them as non-opportunities because I know a lot of these guys and they are amazing individuals, but it is a bit of a risk. And I've just spoken about taking risks, um, about being willing to do something a bit different. And a lot of where I'm working now is trying to help athletes transition from their sports into business, being lucky enough to be somebody that's sort of in between those two worlds somewhat. And I feel I have a responsibility to help them too. And I'm thinking about your um, work now um, with your charity, with Tafauti. I'm thinking about um, your, your passion now is really pushing into that, isn't it? Tell us some more about that. Yeah, so um, Tafauti was naturally born through, obviously, my heritage, but... I've always been banging on about it. Even all the girls in hockey were always like, oh, Krista, wildlife, you know, this is just your thing. And whenever we were away on trips, my poor roommate used to get put through having to watch, you know, David Attenborough umpteen series um, when all they really wanted to watch was something like Love Island. So, yeah, it's ingrained in me. And then it's so funny because you you, you try and fundraise and you try and do things. Um, but suddenly when you get a shiny gong that you've been looking to try and get for a long time, everyone starts listening a bit more. Uh, it sort of gets people's attention, which is a lovely vehicle to get an audience. So why not bring the two worlds together? And I ran an event called the Conservation Ball in March last year, which was purely personally funded to see if 
it could be something. And we got 350 people to an event at the Hurlingham Club and we raised over hundred grand. Wow. And I thought, oh my gosh, this can be something. This really can make such a difference in Africa. And I guess what I, the, the reason why I think a lot of people have backed me is because yes, the heritage and sort of the understanding, but also the fact that because it's not, it's just, a, it's my passion. Yeah. I have my commercial arm. Yes, they overlap implicitly and possibly a little bit too much, but um, my passion is what drives me. And utilizing team, because I understand what it is to be part of a team, I'm now looking to build a team, Team Tafauti, in order to be able to go out and deliver. In the world of conservation and wildlife preservation, we talk a lot. And whilst a lot of what we're saying is correct, we don't necessarily help, I think, in the way that I would like to help. In Africa, we've created a handout mentality because everybody feels that they can solve Africa's problems. And they come in with these quick fix solutions that Africa doesn't understand. And then they're not utilized to their full capacity. So what I'm trying to do is use communities and education as a vehicle to benefit wildlife. Because without people understanding the fact that elephant and lion and things like that are there and we need to preserve them. And that's why tourists come to our country to come and see these animals. And that's our USP to some extent. If we retaliate when livestock are killed or if we continue to um, kill elephants for, for, for ivory or whatever it may be, or just the simple bushmeat trade for subsistence, we're going to start eradicating some of nature that is actually giving us a lifeline because they don't connect the dots. Mm. So it's about building infrastructure, about building schools, about creating health and sanitation facilities so that people realize that it's because of elephants and it's because of lions and it's because of wildlife that they're getting this stuff. And so they start to join the dots, not just in schools. Obviously, that's a massive market for me to operate in because the lack of education in Africa is, is rife. Mm. The inability to read and write is, is scary. And, and I want to operate in the really rural areas, places that are kind of the untouchables, um, because I think a lot of those communities have never had support and help. And a pound here can go so far in Africa if it's used right. And I, I know the pitfalls. I've been in it long enough and I'm a complete skeptic by nature. So I want to dot the I's and cross the T's. I want to be transparent. I want to make sure that there's no question marks. And if there are, I can fulfill them mm. uh, and then go out there and do what I do, which is fix problems and, and help people because that's what I want to do. So you talked about um, the importance of having a really clear purpose and a really clear vision earlier in our conversation. What do you say about Fauti? What's, what's the vision? What's the purpose for you? So the purpose is, yeah, specifically to use education and communities in order to benefit wildlife. Yeah. So um, we have four pillars that we operate in. And I guess in some ways, those are kind of my, our identity pillars that we had for, for hockey, which was we're winners, you know, be the difference, all of those elements. And we break it down into set sort of silos so that it's clear for the donor. Uh, which area we operate in. So environmental impact. So um, whether that's teaching people how to, you know, plant trees or whatever it may be to, to benefit 
uh, wildlife indirectly or rainfall or water or, or anything like that. Infrastructural development, whether it's building roads or um, actual schools. So we've built a school and the girls weren't being educated in that region because they didn't believe in it. So now I've got the girls definitely being educated because that was a prerequisite to me touching the school. Mm -hmm. So you get some negotiating capabilities. Um, but in Africa, everything takes a hell of a lot longer than it does in a first world country. Mm -hmm. So you have to be willing to donate your time, uh, which I don't seem to have that much of. But every ounce I do, I will give it. Then, of course, there's the wildlife side. So wildlife protection. So whether that's anti-poaching units that we support or we work with in Namibia, because we're an Africa-centric, I've spoken a lot about Kenya, but we're an Africa-centric uh, charity. So intelligence support against poaching, we've built a headquarters uh, or the first phase of the building for headquarters for dissemination of intelligence to be able to strategically place informants mm -hmm. around the country. So rather than reacting to a poaching incident where you found the carcass or the vultures have shown you where the carcass is, you actually are on the ground waiting for them because you hear about what's happening prior to it happening as they get their gangs together because this is what it is. They operate in gangs. Yeah. We then can be on the ground uh, with the right training, with the right personnel in order to receive them. And then, of course, um, well, you've got your wildlife protection and then, of course, your sort of wildlife development area. So um, about supporting, whether you know, supporting partners on the ground that's kind of a lot of what our principles driven around because i'm not in africa enough i'd love to be there as much as possible but our whole prerogative is built around partnerships and thankfully i've got a few connections over the years in conservation i know who i want to work with because i know who's real and genuine and doing it for the right reasons i'm going to be stringent because i need to make sure that we've got that relay of information that comes back so to our donors. So that's kind of the policy and how I'm going about trying to do it is working with partners on the ground that deliver for me. And I know who they are and I know and I can make them accountable. So, so there's that trust thing again, isn't it? And knowing who you can work with, knowing that you can hold them accountable. It's a and that's fundamental thread, isn't to it? success to yeah. any charity or any business. Yes. You know, you've got to be able to trust everybody that you, that you work with. And I'll make some wrong decisions. And I think... You know, we live in this world where we're, we're riddled with social media, where we try and tell everybody what a perfect life we all lead. And, and I'm just a realist. And I hope that's come across. You know, I'm not here to save Africa. You know, I, that is that is a massive ask and it's impossible. What I'm here to do is to try and work in little silos of areas that I know I can have a maximal impact in, whatever that may be, whether it's building a school or whether it's, you know, creating infrastructure uh, for a conservation effort, you know, building a dam that can hold water that can service both livestock, wildlife and a community is a massive thing because we can't hold water in Africa because we've got such a problem with our population. We're going to run out of water. But a lot of people sort of say, we're here to save the day. And that's just not real. It's not, <laughs> you can't do that. I'm here to be really real, be really genuine. And at times, if I make a wrong decision, I have to report on that too. And tell donors, this is what's happened. This is what I believed in. This is what I went about to go and try and do. But unfortunately, this is what happens. And that's the reality. I think I have a responsibility to report on the good and the bad. Mm. And I think that's about being real, about being genuine and honest. Because, you know, a lot of charities, and I love what all the charities do, and I think a lot of them do some amazing work, but it's all just perfect. 
And I'm not perfect. I've never been perfect. Um, and so I think that's important too, because people buy into you for that. Yeah. But it's that authenticity, isn't it? About it's, it's who you are. It's, it's how you present yourself. Yeah, and uh, I wish I was perfect, but I can assure you that's not the case. And I think, yeah, the realism, the realism's key here because people need to, um, they deserve the truth. You know, it's part of that confrontation. It's part of that being willing to put your head out above the parapet, being willing to say stuff that isn't always comfortable. Um, but if it's the truth and people see that authentic side, then people back you. And I've been really lucky and I think that's what's humbled me more than anything on this very organic journey that I've been on is the number of people who have said, Krista, how do I get behind you? And it's about awareness. So much like I did in March, I've got another event called the Conservation Ball coming up on the 19th of September at the Hurlingham Club. Now, it's not your normal pretentious uh, dinner event that you go to 10 a dozen like I do, which are lovely. Don't get me wrong and fundraise amazing things for amazing causes. It's fun. You know, it's, it's different. It's devoutly for those reasons. You know, it's about, you know, having a laugh, enjoying yourself. There's a lot of love, a lot of fun in the room. Claire Balding's emceeing, who has a unique approach to everything. And I, and I adore her. And she's a massive supporter of devoutly. Um, we're going to show a film about a baby elephant pro project that we've been working on in the north, which are all either poaching cases or abandonment or fallen wells, all have their horrible stories, but having second chances. And it's a unique event. So um, if anybody is interested and would like to come along and, and just almost learn a little bit more about Tafauti and, and what we're trying to do, it is about relating people in, in this world, in the first world, to animals and wildlife. It's not a natural thing so it is it is unique in its composition and unique in its delivery and it's a really fun evening so I would love people to join us it sounds fabulous and and it sounds different it sounds to parity as you as you say absolutely um I wish you enormous success with it I'm sure that you will absolutely make it successful I can't imagine how you wouldn't um just in, I guess, in, in summary, um, it would be really useful for people listening, thinking about taking a risk, seizing an opportunity, doing something difficult, having that tough conversation. What sort of words of advice would you leave them with, do you think? I've operated hugely around going with my gut. Mm. Uh, and a lot of the time uh, there is that self-doubt mechanism, just like I had when I received that phone call. Uh, it's very normal. So don't, don't push it away or push it to one side, accept it and accept the consequences. And I guess it's weighing up the positives and the negatives to anything or any move that you're going to make so that you at least go in informed. And then I guess it's about just being willing to go for it. If you believe, genuinely believe that your challenge or your confrontation is with the firms or you as an individual's best interests at heart, and isn't going to necessarily negatively impact on others or you try and manage that. So I think it's about weighing up the situation as a whole. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do with some of the projects that I'm looking at, you know, to, to fund. You put a water catchment area or a water provision in a locality, a community moves to it. So don't be under any illusion that you're now moving people. And then wildlife don't access it because humans are there. And then you get the human wildlife conflict issue, which is what I spoke about before. How do you eradicate that? So every issue you're trying to address has an impact otherwise. So just weigh it up. And then sometimes just go for it. 
throw it out there, you know, and just make sure it's with the right intentions and, and, and then crisis manage in and around it. And sometimes you'll get your judgment wrong. I, trust me, I've done it. Yeah. Um, but the more you do it or the more you're willing to do it, um, sometimes you, you do get it right. And those conversations are sometimes the best conversations you're ever going to have. So you're not expecting a phone call anytime soon about next year, are you? <laughs> no, I'm a little old now. <laughs> I think I'd be more surprised than anything else. <laughs> okay. No. Thank you so much for, um, for being here today. Brilliant. No Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave a rating and review to help others find out about the show. This is a Podo podcast produced by Nick Hilton in association with Corndell. Mm-hmm.